0: Well, the Bible predicts that this is going to be the case. Herod knows, or, you know, this is the Messiah. He knows who the Messiah is supposed to be. The chief priests and scribes know who the Messiah is supposed to be and where he's supposed to be born. And if there was any chance at all that this was a true Messiah, what should they have done? They should have run along with the Magi to worship, but they don't.
1: Welcome once again to Grace Marvel Weekly. If you joined us last time, You heard as Pastor Chris Riser introduced us to the Magi in Part A of the sermon titled, The King is Worshipped. Pastor Chris began with the arrival of the Magi, followed by the question the Magi had for the people of Jerusalem, and then their quest to worship the prophesied Messiah, who was born King of the Jews. Let's listen to the conclusion of the sermon as Pastor Chris describes the trouble caused by the arrival of the Magi and their desire to worship this newborn king with the evil response of King Herod and the indifference of the religious Jewish leaders.
0: Verse 9 says, It appeared to them again they saw it, so they didn't follow it all the way from where they were in Persia to Jerusalem. Right, so that one's going to be the, probably the hardest to hold. So I present these other options because I think they're possible, viable, good options for you to consider as you consider the nature of this text. So they saw something in the east. That something caused them to recognize that a king of the Jews had been born, probably in conjunction with the scripture that they had that was left to them and the legacy of Daniel who spoke of a messiah. Right, so, we'll kind of put all that together with scripture and what they saw, and then we don't know exactly what the star was, but they come very sure of what they're coming for. Again, they're not coming to look to see if this has happened, they are declaring that it has happened. They just want to find the king. Right, so, whatever happened, they are sure that this, that this is real. And they say, Their quest, ultimately, is to worship Him. We have come to worship. The word there is to fall down before, to recognize the greatness of. Now, did they recognize that Jesus was God? I don't know. Did they recognize that He was the King of the Jews who was to be worshipped, even though He wasn't their king? Right? He wasn't the king of their country? So again, this indicates to me that they at least realized that, biblically speaking, this was the, the Messiah, the one sent from God, who was worthy of worship. If they had the full-orbed understanding, I don't know. Possibly. But they understand that He is to be bowed down before. He is to be shown honor and reverence. We have come to worship Him. And again, I would ask, as we just consider applications to ourselves today, that's the Magi then. I mean, Do you pursue worship? Is that why you've come? Is that what you seek to do? Guys, we're going to do communion this morning. Have you come to worship the Lord this morning? Have you come to get information? Have you come to hang out with people? You probably haven't come for the warm, comfy atmosphere. (laughs) It's It's not really what we do. But if you just come for truth, those are wonderful things. But have you come to worship? He is worthy of it. And is that your purpose, your whole goal in life, is to orient around the worship of the King of Kings? That is what we are about. That's what the Magi were about what all true believers in God are about. He is worthy to be worshipped. Once you truly know Him, your passion is to worship Him. Yes, tainted by sin. Yes, in increasing measure as we grow, but that's your passion. It's not just about learning. It's not just about doing. It's about worship. And that's that's what the Magi were all about. They wanted to worship. Now, Now, the worshipers caused some trouble, though. Right, the worshippers have arrived. We have the worshippers' quest. Why are they there? The worshippers' question. Now we have the worshippers causing trouble. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I'll bet. Here's this army that shows up all right, with these very powerful people with apparently lots of money, and they say, we want to acknowledge the king, and it's not you, and it's not your children. So what is Herod going to do? He's, of course, very troubled. Now notice, fascinatingly enough, the text says, and all Jerusalem with him. Uh-huh. Because what troubled Herod? Troubled them. Because now Herod's going to go on a rampage, right? He's going to, whoever this king, these people aren't stupid. He's already done this kind of thing. So everybody. Now, stirred up, I think, is part of this. But I think related to the nature of who Herod is and what he's going on, the people are all going, what is going to happen now? Really, I, th- I think they're on the edge of their seats in a, in a very scared way. What is Herod going to do now? How is he going to respond to this challenge? Because you notice that the people don't go trampling after the magi to go find the Messiah, even though that's what they're essentially asking, even the scribes and Pharisees don't go because they're waiting on Herod seems to be the indication, so everyone is troubled, but particularly Herod. It's probably Herod because they're a threat to his rule, even right then if they're going to establish another king, obviously his dynasty doesn't continue, so he won't be able to he won't be able to hold on to the kingship if this king of the Jews is actually exposed. So what does he do? He calls a religious gathering. He says, quick, let's get my wise men together. Let's get the guys that, my go-to guys for religious things and find out what's going on here because I've got to, and, and notice all of this for Herod is done in an entirely secular manner. He's, got, he's, politi- he's a master politician. He's got to figure out how to manipulate the situation so he comes out on top. Instantly that's what he's thinking. So he gets together the, the scribes and Pharisees. He's first got to get the information because he's got to answer their question. He knows it's not in Jerusalem, so where is this Messiah supposed to be born? By the way, he seems to assume that these guys know what they're talking about, that this has actually happened. So he, he, he asks, and notice what he says. He gathers the chief priests, verse 4, and scribes to the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. He knows what this means. The king of the Jews is the promised Messiah. He's their king. He is their savior. Even Herod knows this, although he has no intention whatsoever of worshiping. He's a, I mean, he's, he's your poster child for knowing the information and refusing to do anything about it. In fact, he does something about it. He knows the information, so he's going to eliminate the threat. I submit to you that that is the world's natural response to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. They, they, in their hearts, they know this to be true because the Bible says that in Romans 1. And so what do they do? They want to eliminate the threat to their own rule. We all are Herod at heart apart from Christ. He challenges us. The King of kings? He's going to rule my life then. The true Messiah, so i got to get rid of that. Now, we don't respond always like, you know, as we, we don't have the power to respond as virulently as Herod did, but we want to eliminate that threat, and so we do. We set Jesus to the side. We try to eliminate the influence of the King of Kings. Well, Herod's doing the same. So, he gathers his religious leaders, and they're going to join him in this, inquires of them, the Messiah, and I love this in one sense. There was just absolutely no question. This was, this was simple. This is an easy answer. They didn't, you know, they didn't look through their books and, you know, and do you know, divination and look at tea leaves and try to figure out, well, Messiah, where's he going to be born? They know exactly the answer. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah or leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Apparently, they quoted several verses. Matthew then records kind of the putting of those two verses together, Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. 2 Samuel 5.2 speaks of the Messiah as shepherd. There's some other issues here that we don't have time for this morning in, in, no, in this Old Testament quotation. We'll hit those really strongly, by the way. I'm not avoiding it. When we get to, out of Egypt I called my son. We're going, to, we're going to get to some issues in how Matthew quotes and things like that. We don't have time for that, but this one is a pretty clear, direct biblical quote. There's a few issues with it as far as what is Matthew actually quoting, but he's quoting the Old Testament, probably the, at least it seems, he's quoting here the LXX, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he puts these two verses together because they probably did. They quoted both. Here's what the Messiah is going to be. The king and the shepherd, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. This was, there was absolutely no question about this. Again, well, the Bible predicts that this is going to be the case Herod knows or you know this is the Messiah he knows the, who the Messiah is supposed to be. the chief priests and scribes know who the Messiah is supposed to be and where he's supposed to be born and if there was any chance at all that this was a true Messiah, what should they have done? They should have run along with the magi to worship, but they don't now, what did you, Jesus predicted this John one nine There was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus hasn't spoken a word, and they've already rejected him because it doesn't fit the bill for what they want. Certainly not for Herod. He doesn't want to have anyone usurp his rule. And it seems that the chief priests and scribes, because this doesn't play into the political process, they're probably afraid of Herod, and they're also like, it's not anybody on our radar. It, this isn't some king who's going to destroy the Roman Empire, at least it doesn't seem to us, so he's unimportant. If he's not going to challenge Herod, because certainly they don't like Herod either, if he's not going to do that, if it, if it doesn't figure into the way we've got this worked out, it's, it's inconsequential. And so they didn't even go, out of fear, out of indifference, it didn't fit their view of what the Messiah ought to be like, even though they got the right place. Like, this doesn't make any sense to us, Magi showing up to do this? So they didn't even go. Right, So an, an absolute indifference here to the king of kings and lord of lords, probably with fear. So the causing trouble, it stirs up Herod, it stirs up the city, they give the answer, right, and then Herod gives some instruction. right. Herod gives some instruction. So I think the two r- points you have under there are the response to the Magi and then the instruction of the Magi. So Herod, and he already has a plan. Herod secretly, and again that means privately, he calls the Magi and he determines from them the exact amount or exact time when the star appeared. When did you see this? Tell me exactly. Now, of course, they don't know why. But why would they not say? The text doesn't tell us what they said, but it appears to indicate that they gave him a time frame because he understands about two years, because that's what he's going to do in our in our sermon in two weeks. We're going to see that he understood it to be that. So they tell him, and so he then begins to calculate in his mind what he's going to do. Verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go and search carefully for the child." And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. What a contrast. You have the Magi have come 900 miles. They're, they're, they're former pagans who are not Jewish, who have no reason really to go at all and worship the Messiah of the Jews. And here you have the so called king of the Jews, the ruler of the Jews at that time, who understands this is the Messiah, along with the chief priests and scribes. And they're actually worshiping. And his only thought is, I'll send you first. And then when you tell me, I'm not going to go and worship him, I'm going to go and kill him. Talk about two total polar opposite responses. It, it should have been exactly the opposite, right? A Jew or even a half-Jew and the scribes and Pharisees who were Jews should have responded and, the, and the, the formerly pagan magi shouldn't have even been in the picture. But they're the ones worshiping. And his very own have rejected him even before he said a word. And Clearly, we see here not only the work of our own sinful human hearts and their hearts, but who else's work do we see here? Clearly, we see the work of the enemy of our soul of Satan himself orchestrating events in such a way that he seeks to eliminate the Messiah before he even gets started. Certainly, Satan is aware of these things and is working so that this will never even begin. He will kill the Messiah. What a triumph that would be for Satan himself to remove the ability for man to be saved and therefore steal worship, steal the glory of God for those, all who would come after that, who would worship him. It would be the ultimate coup to kill the one to be worshiped or the one who would enable worship so that God would not be honored in the way that he so richly deserves. He says, come, report to me. And it's a very strong word. He says, go, search carefully. Make sure you find him. Oh, yeah. No stone unturned. Make sure you go to every house and then come back and tell me which one it was. Don't leave, he says, until you find this guy and then come back so I can go worship. By the way, if your worship is obvious to others, if you have a true heartfelt love for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, understand that then the forces of your enemy will be marshaled against you, and your own sinful heart will rise up against that. That's the opposition that you face. The Magi faced it in a little different way, but this is always the opposition. You declare your worship of the King of Kings, your desire to worship Him, and that is when the enemy of your soul says, now I've got to get to work. Because he wants to worship, and I can't have that. Because the one thing he hates more than anything else is the worship of God. He wants to be worshipped, and he is is trying. He's got a separate, alternate plan of history where he orchestrates everything so that he Satan is worshipped. It's the sub history or the alternate history to the Son of God being worshipped and God being worshipped through him. Now let's see what happens. And this is again just an amazing narrative. Says after hearing the king, they went their way. These guys don't know any better. Okay, I got the camera, right? King wants to find out. Maybe it's a little strange he doesn't come. You know, they didn't know. Okay, we'll go back. We'll tell him. He wants to send us and find him. Okay. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, notice the past tense, went on before them. It seems to indicate clearly that they hadn't seen it before. They had seen it back then. They get here to Jerusalem, and now it shows up again, whatever it is that is guiding them. It went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Again, very unusual behavior. So it doesn't, guys, they didn't need to know where Bethlehem was. They had a good enough map to get to Jerusalem. And and it was told, Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. It's not very far. So they need to be guided to Bethlehem. They needed to be guided to where the child was. It's not a big town, but they would have had to go and knock on doors, as it were. So the glory of God, if that's what it was, the celestial body created by God, an actual celestial body behaving in a very unusual fashion, goes to the very house where Jesus is. And essentially, in some way, illuminates. this is the house. You, know, you see all the pictures where the you know, star is shining down. However, it happened. Right? There you have the, the, this, this star illuminating, showing the exact house where the child is. But notice that even before, and, and this is also a fascinating thing, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they, oh, it stood over the place where the child was. It seems like when it says when they saw the star, that was even before it had led them. When the star showed up again, the text seems to indicate that's when they started to rejoice. We're almost done. We're almost there. Now we're going to, we're going to actually get to the end of our quest so that we can worship. And they rejoiced at this. They weren't even there yet, and they're rejoicing over the worship that they were going to be able to give to this Messiah. Because it seems to them when the star shows up, right, when, when they saw the star as it appeared and then brought them, they rejoiced exceedingly, and it almost seems like they were rejoicing all the way to Bethlehem as they followed the star. This is the end of our quest. We get to worship now. Is that the kind of joy you worship with? They don't even know this King of Kings. You know the King of kings. You honor Him, and yet where, where's your joy? To think of the fact that, I mean, you guys, we have the Word every day and the Spirit of God that leads us to the truth and shows us what we need to know and enables us to worship, and so often our, our joy is little or, or, or less, lacking. I mean, in every way, these, these former pagans, these, these Gentiles, are showing us up, and, and even in their joy over the privilege of worship. I understand it's not easy to have joy all the time, and I'm sure the Magi didn't rejoice all the time. We are shown here that when, they, when they're when they about to reach their quest, the end of it, to see this King of Kings, their joy, it really it just piles on superlatives. They rejoiced exceedingly. They had great joy on top of their joy. It's like they, they were dancing all the way to Bethlehem because they were going to get to worship the King. Wow. That our joy would be as great. Now, we're going to see they actually get to do what they're supposed to. So the worshipers rejoice, is was the next point on your outline, the, they, the guidance of the magi, guide by, guided by the stars, the joy of the magi, or by the star, the joy of the magi, that they were looking forward to this privilege of worshiping, and now the worshipers actually get to worship. That's verse 11. After coming into the house, notice that it was a house, it's not the stable. And actually, the Bible never tells us it was a stable, even in Luke. Could have been a house that actually Jesus was born in with a manger in it. We have no idea. Seems like it was most, you know, most likely, because there was that manger, that he was born in a, uh, you know, perhaps a cave or something that for, formed a stable. But this is later on. Could be as much as two years. They're in a house. Joseph has gotten a job, most likely. They have a house. It's a child, not a baby. So you know, move, remove your manger scene where it's got the three. You can leave it there. That's fine. It gets, it gets the picture in mind. All right? There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not historically accurate. Right, they didn't show up there at all that, on that night, and there were more than three. Uh, how they all got in the house, I don't know how many of them got in. Maybe that limits the size of the, or the amount of the Magi. All right, they only certain amount that could go in the house. You got the guards surrounding it. Remember, Bethlehem was a really small place. I imagine this caused quite a stir. <laughs> you know, here come the Magi with their, you know, with their big entourage showing up in little Bethlehem. But going right to the place where he is, they enter into the house. Mary is the it's actually the child who's highlighted. The child with his mother Mary, which would only make sense. She's caring for him. Joseph isn't mentioned, interestingly enough. But when they saw this, look what look what they do. They fell to the ground and worshipped. Really say so worshiped and worshipped. It's two words for worship. They fell to their knees and worshiped. And I, I don't think you know, some say, well, you know, they were just this is just pagan people worshiping this new king. What? I mean, you would you this is not the response you would have. It was just, you know, a, a normal king. They understand this to be the king of the Jews, and I think it's clear the Messiah. They have an understanding of this, apparently from Scripture and or Daniel's legacy, and they fall down on their knees and they worship this king. Whether they understood fully about his nature as God, we don't know, but they understand that he is the promised Messiah, he is the king, and they worship. This is the only proper response to Jesus, ever and always. And what a travesty in this sense that it was these, these Gentiles who worship before the people of God. Now, Again, it, for, for, our, for our application, what a, what a travesty it is when those who don't know as much of Christ and those who haven't had the privileges that we've had to know of Christ and walk with Him worship in, in better ways than we, more sincerely than we, more joyfully than we. I sometimes think of the missionary endeavors, even say over in Papua New Guinea, those, those, those precious believers that come to Christ and that their heart to serve and honor the Lord, just for some reason seems to be magnitudes greater than ours, or at least it seems that way. Why is that? Because we become dulled maybe? Too much. In, you can't get too much information about Christ if you use it wisely, but you can if you stop using it. And, and I would just pray that we wouldn't be outdone we who have had such a legacy of knowing Christ and having His Word and all these would we'll be outdone by people who just got introduced to Him. It's a different kind of joy, perhaps, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be Gentiles, as it were that are worshiping in that way. In this case, it should have been the people of God. It should have been the scribes and Pharisees. It should have been all the other people in Jerusalem gathered around the house, falling on their knees, but they don't. And so God says, I will be worshiped. And if I will not be worshiped by my people at this time, I will get pagans or former pagans from 900 miles away to come and make me king or worship me as king. God will do what it takes. Hear, Hear this very carefully. You may choose at this time not to bend the knee to Jesus as master and Lord but it will not end that way. He will bring other worshipers, and then one day you will bend the knee. You will be forced to bend the knee. My prayer is that you would bend the knee now in joy. The Scripture is very clear. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be worshiped, and He shows that here. He calls the Magi, from 900 miles away to worship. He's established that through his own sovereign means, through history, and he brings them in an amazing fashion, and they fall on their knees before this child in this house. And, And what faith? What faith? They believed that this was true. They believed the Word of God, whether spoken to them through the Shekinah glory, whether in Scripture, whether passed down through what Daniel said, who knows? But they believed this was the king. They humbly drop on this. They had faith. They had humility. That's what it takes to be saved, to believe, to humble yourself before a holy God, to recognize your need for Him. And they recognized His value of the generosity of the Magi. They gave Him gifts. How much ink has been spilled on the gifts, right? And so we'll just, we'll mention them. They fell to the ground they worshipped, and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. By the way, that, that last verse, let's deal with it quickly. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. That's the last point. The, de- the worshippers depart their obedience to God, which is another indication to us that they were true believers. He shows up to them in a dream, says, don't go back there, and they obey. They do what he says. Also seems to me to be an indication that he's possibly spoken to them before. Possibly to bring them there. And so they say, okay, we got here. Now we need to not go back to Herod so they don't. So that's their departure. But what I'd like to do with the gifts, because I I don't, it doesn't seem to me that the Magi themselves, and again, we don't know for sure, whether they knew the full import of their gifts. They are coming bringing the richest things that they would have had. These represent royalty, they represent the, the richness of royalty. Whether they represent all the things that have been written that they represent, I don't know. But I would like to use them by application this morning, for us to consider communion. So if the men would come forward, I'd like to take these gifts, which I think were most likely from the Magi, simply a representation of the value of Christ as the King, offering a gift up to Him without necessarily an understanding of that each gift had, was, was a prophetic foreshadowing of something that would happen. But we do we know what did happen in the life of Christ. And so, again, I'd like to use these gifts to ask you three questions. They brought Him gold. Now, that's the most precious of metals. You would bring that to a king. And so they bring him what is most valuable in currency, and they give it. Now, by the way, this probably funded is their flight to Egypt and back. So they bring him that. And, and so they bring what is valuable. My question to you is, as you come to communion, what did Christ bring? His life. He gave it for you. When you come to him, right, it, is, it is not your time. You're not the magi coming bringing stuff. You're supposed to come and bring what is most valuable. You bring your life. That's all you have to offer at this table. You don't have anything else to give. You don't have any gold to give. You don't have anything you could, you, you could get to him. Your response to his sacrifice for you is to be the offering of your own life. That's what salvation is. Have you done that? Do you recognize that he's that valuable? They gave him gold. That's, that's what they could do. And in essence, they were giving their lives too, weren't they, as they were living? They were giving their devotion, their time. They were giving of themselves. He asks your life because he gave his It's not too much to ask, but it is everything, and it's what He asks. In your understanding of what it is to be a believer, do you understand that? You may not come and say, you can have part of my life, you can have a little gold. He asks for it all. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what He asks. but He already gave it. See, that's the beauty of this. That's what we celebrate at the table. He doesn't ask you to give it not already having demonstrated his faithfulness to give you his, far more valuable than yours, the eternal son of God dying for you. First question, will you bring him gold? Really, will you bring him what is most valuable your entire life? Maybe some of you have never done that. Instead of, well, what you need to do is give him that, and then you can take communion this morning. If you would repent and believe, giving him your life. The next gift they brought was frankincense. It's incense. It is used to sacrifice to gods, and it is used to sacrifice, was used to sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. And I do think it helps us, it can paint a picture, us knowing what came, it can paint a picture of the fragrant aroma of the sacrifice of Christ, that it rises up before God as the perfect atoning sacrifice. I'm not saying that's what the Magi knew that it was, I'm saying that we understand what it is, and so to consider that gift for a moment, that incense... Do you understand that what is happening at communion uh, satisfies the wrath of God? It's the propitiating sacrifice, the big word for it takes His wrath fully. It is is a pleasant aroma to the Lord, as it were. It satisfies, it appeases His wrath. That's what's going on at this table. Not simply an empathetic atonement, that is, that He took your trials and your sufferings. He's done that. But more, He took your sin, and He took the wrath of God against your sin, against you. And then the final gift that they gave was myrrh. And it was, now again, it was a spice, very valuable. So just given for that, it's valuable, and an indication of Christ's value. Our understanding, though, we know that myrrh was used for burial. And we know what? That Jesus was buried. He died and he was buried. That they wrapped him in it as an indication of what? His full death. When you go into the ground, you're done. You're not coming out. You don't come out of the tomb. Nobody comes out of the tomb. So the, the, the burial of Christ, really as an understanding of, of the finalization of that sacrifice on your behalf, he really died all the way so that he could actually take your punishment. He had to conquer death. He had to die and conquer it. That's what we celebrate at this table. He did that for you. Really, the gifts are to you. His gifts given to the Savior, yes, by the magi, because of his value. but he has given far more. So what are you bringing when you come? Your life? I pray so. An understanding of your need for a substitutionary sacrifice, that your wrath has to be taken or you will die in your sins. And then an understanding that death was final and complete and total. Nothing else needed, nothing to be added. Might you maybe use the gifts to help you with that? Might that be a blessing
1: to you? Well, thank you for joining us at Grace Marvel Weekly. As we just heard from Pastor Chris Riser, the contrast in how the Magi, who were Gentiles, responded to Jesus at his birth was staggering compared to the Jewish religious leaders and King Herod's response. The Magi rejoiced exceedingly at the privilege to worship the promised Messiah. King Herod's response to the Messiah's birth was an evil plan to have him killed to maintain his own rule. The religious leaders were not at all interested in this child that they knew to be the promised Messiah and Savior. If this is the first time you've heard the details of Jesus' birth, or if you've heard it so many times that it's no longer exciting, consider this. You may choose not to bend the knee to Jesus, but he will draw to himself people who will worship him. And one day soon, the whole world will bow to Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you would like to find out more about Grace Community Church, please visit us at gracemarvel.org. There you can read our Statement of Faith and our Distinctives, as well as review our audio and video archive, which includes sermons, Sunday School lessons, and sermons from many of our guest speakers at our solo conferences and our Essentials Conferences. We would love to have you worship with us in person if you're ever in East Tennessee. Our address, phone number, and email information can all be found at gracemarvel.org. Join us again soon as Pastor Chris continues in an exegetical look at the Book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.